This is Giant. I got your visual. Come here, Mike. I'm standing by for you. Roger. I'll be there in a couple of mics. In the meantime, give him help. You're listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast, hosted exclusively by Fire Force Ventures and the Commando Blog. This is episode one. I'm Hank, here joined by Bindu. Eh? We're going to be doing a deep dive here today on the first part of our series with Chris Cox's tour de force, Fire Force, published in 1988. Harare. Zimbabwe, Monday 30th, June 1986. It was a chilly morning in Harare. The young psychologist was looking at my fingernails as he spoke. I subconsciously tried to cover them up as I have the bad habit of biting them. He'll make something out of that, I don't doubt, I thought. Drinking is not a problem unless it is used to solve a problem. I considered and digested this information and finally decided it must be true. I had for the last few years been drinking and smoking far too heavily, and I took no exercise. I didn't tell him this. You are intelligent, and you are using drink as a solution for your boredom and frustration. I reflected on this and decided this was also true. You would have been ideally suited to law, but because of present circumstances, I suggest you take some sort of commercial degree. He certainly made sense. Don't think it's just you, he continued. There are a lot of people from your era who are completely without direction. You're from a lost generation. Right again. The memories of some of my contemporaries flashed through my mind. Malcolm Nicholson, who blew his brains out in Durban. One-eyed Neville Harding, drowned in his own vomit. Bob Smith, who died of cancer. Carl Oosterhuizen, who shot himself in the head in Cape Town. Frank Neve, electrocuted by a swimming pool pump. Marius Marias, killed in a car accident. Trevor Schultz, shot in the head, now all these years later, might have to have his arm amputated. Goss Condon, who had just spent eight months in a Spanish gal for drug smuggling. Robert England, sentenced to death for his part in the abortive Chile's coup, but later reprieved. The list was endless. Some joined the South African Defense Force, and a few are still there. Some joined the British Army, and one or two fought in the Falklands. A few serve as instructors and bodyguards in Arab armies. Some have gone religious, some are in Civvy Street, some successful, some just drifting. From the results of the test, the psychologist continued, I see you have a strong leaning towards expression. You could have been a journalist or even an author. Author? Five years ago, I started writing down some of my experiences. But as with the other things, the efforts petered out, and my writings had since sat in the back of a dark cupboard. The interview drew to a close. We both rose and shook hands. I was shown outside and I walked out into the chilly June air. That is the opening to Chris Cox's Fire Force, One Man's War in the Rhodesian Light Infantry. Uh, so you you just finished this book. I've obviously read it. Um, mm-hmm. to, to give the listeners a little bit of context, we both have, you can see a historical background. Mm-hmm. Historical education. Uh, you have your. We both have a bachelor's degree in it, I believe. In in history, yeah. Yes. Um, I specialized in European history. You were a general historian. I, yes, did not really specialize. In, I, I, I specialized think... a little bit in uh, certain areas, but nothing with 
my impression of Fire Force, I think it was a very good primer into coming to understand the conflict. Now, it wasn't the first book I read on the Rhodesian Bush War. For Again, for additional context, this book takes place in the Rhodesian Bush War with Chris Cox's basically first kind of tour of duty with the Rhodesian Light Infantry. Mm-hmm. He later joins the BSAP. He has follow-up books to this. And mm-hmm. this prologue, basically, he's kind of describing his comrades-in-arms. This is six years after the war ended. Yes. So he'd been out of the service for about about maybe seven years at this point, six or seven years at this point. Mm-hmm. So many of them are dead or maimed or yes messed up. Yeah, no, there's very fewer had what could could be considered a happy ending. For Cox himself, he's taken to basically alcoholism. He's, he's getting therapy. Mm-hmm. It sounds like he's talking to some sort of cognitive behavioral therapist at this stage, dealing with some PTSD, dealing with... Mm-hmm. Um, looking for work. Looking for work as well. So just the, just the whole nine yards of, you know, mm-hmm. almost like every, every trope you can imagine that happens to the messed up veteran after a conflict. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that the doctor here, in... in, in Zimbabwe, um, which is now, you know, which was formerly Rhodesia, currently Zimbabwe, after, after 1980 it became Zimbabwe, um, this doctor is basically telling him he's part of a lost generation, mm-hmm. and Chris thinks about all those that have been lost in, in that lost generation throughout that bush war, so it's, I think this book dispels a lot of the myths of the Rhodesian bush war conflict dispels a lot of the misconceptions mm-hmm. it corrects them because it was it was a pretty gnarly war yes um the one thing that stuck in my mind as much as uh as i kept reading was how similar the war felt to the vietnam war and how how much the sort of rhodesian uh, soldiers reminded me of u.s veterans who'd been through the vietnam war yeah, there's a lot of there's similarities. A lot of parallels, yeah. It uh, was definitely one of these very, very cruel and very harsh Cold War. Um, some people call them brush fire conflicts, but I think that doesn't do justice to the enormity of what happened here. So the book, chronologically, at least this book, uh, he has a later he has his later sequel, Out of Action. There's another one to follow mm-hmm. up on that. Yes. Um, Out of Action details his experiences as a British South Africa police reservist. This just focuses on his experiences as a as a frontline soldier with a line unit, the uh, uh, third battalion, the Lovers three, Battalion. Three, three, three commando. Sorry, they're not a battalion. Yeah. They're a commando unit. So uh, three commando Rhodesian Light Infantry, mm-hmm. the Lovers, as you yes. said. He kind of talks a bit about his training. Yes. He um, talks a bit about paratraining. He talks about on a survival course, the, the weapons handling, the drill, the discipline of the Rhodesian army at this stage. He talks about the few foreign volunteers that he runs into. Mm-hmm. Actually, quite a few foreign volunteers. Yeah, a lot of, lot of foreign <laughs> lot, volunteers. Lots of foreign volunteers he runs into during his time in the Rhodesian Light Infantry. Uh, and... And then, and then he goes right into all these ops that he's involved in, all mm-hmm. these all these contacts. So, running into the enemy, all the terminology they use for the enemy, we'll get into that. Yes, um, yeah. And we'll get into all this. He also talks a bit about the other units he works with, um, the Special Air Service C Squadron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a bit about the RAR, the Rhodesian African Rifles. A bit about some of the territorials. Yes. 
A lot about the civilian population too, both black and white. And he's got quite a few stories for them. One one of them that we'll, we'll definitely have to yes, share. Yes, one of them is definitely quite a quite a uh, man among men himself. <laughs> yeah. So since this is the first podcast, we we want to obviously look at events in military history with as much nuance as possible. This is a very nuanced book. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't glorify anything about short shorts and FALs. It's just yes, it w- he's there, doing a job. There is no romanticism in this book. I mean, yeah. yes, um, he Chris Cox is certainly proud to be there and proud to be uh, fighting alongside his fellow soldiers. But he is not somebody who has any uh, reservations about how brutal and how cruel the war could be for everyone involved. Yes, he he was not somebody who. He's not somebody like uh, Ernest Jünger or someone who is... Will Arbird. Or Will Arbird or other people we may be talking about in later episodes. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. Who sort of had sort of a almost transcendent spiritual, spiritual war. war as long as the this physical is, one... This is a... This is a average Joe. This who is an is, average Joe at war. Yeah. yeah, at war who is proud to be there but also would rather not be there. Chris Cox doesn't definitely doesn't yeah. make himself or any of the many serves was out to be Superman. They're yes, they're, they're flawed ordinary, human beings. Yeah, so. they're flawed human beings. They're ordinary men, mm-hmm. sometimes kind of like you know, goofy men. <laughs> they're in, in, very in, goofy. Some in, of them in, in, in very extraordinary experiences. So let's 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 uh, let's get right into the book here. Yeah. he's he's going through some of the training. You know, he, he initially he doesn't want to join. The Rhodesian Army. He doesn't no, really he, volunteer. He actually made a plan to try and run away and hop on a train. I think it was to... To South Africa. Yeah, to South Africa. To, yeah, to avoid being conscripted. But he had a conversation, I believe, with his sister. Yeah. Um, and that convinced him that he should stay and serve his country. Uh, or at least not run away from the service. I'm but going. He, he, the beginning of the book, he's literally trying to. Run yes. Away. No. Yeah. He is not. He is not he's a. Not a uh, he's not a. You know. He's not your standard patriotic. Yeah. He is guy. not a wide-eyed uh, young boy yeah. dreaming of battles and patriotism yeah. and glory. Yeah. He's, he's basically he like, he trying to bug out. Yeah. So he eventually he changes his mind, and he gets he he's just like screwed. I'm going to do my national service. I'm going to do the job. It's going to be a few years. Mm-hmm. Once I'm done, I'm going to get out. As we perhaps know, and maybe the listeners don't know, the, the Rhodesian military was was pretty pretty harsh on, on the discipline. Yes. Uh, and I, he learns that right away. Yeah, I think I will share an excerpt here where one of the first things, first experiences Chris Cox has of the military is his uh, sergeant major nicknamed Moose, who is talking to him and several other young recruits. And I'm going to read a small excerpt here from Moose talking to one of the other recruits. What's your name? He now bawled at the recruit. Condon, came the timid reply. Rage suffused the sergeant major's already terrifying face. Condon had not addressed him as sir, and I thought the veins in his almost non-existent neck were about to burst as he howled not more than six inches from Condon's white face. You nasty little piece of dog turd! Sir, you call me sir, do you understand? So yeah, that is it's kind just, of yeah. what you could expect rolling up to the RLI. 
So doing the list in in the Commonwealth for any anybody um, who is a warrant officer or above. Uh, generally, you call them sir. I think an Americans wouldn't know that. It's not a very common thing because they're considered mm-hmm. quote unquote officers. So you do call them sir, even though they're not commissioned. Yes. Uh, and then in the states, it's a little different mm-hmm. uh, from my understanding. But so so basically, he's the you know. You have the standard, you have to address your NCOs and stuff. Um, you've got this extremely muscular, angry man yelling at you. I think that's 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 very common with um, mm-hmm. a lot of militaries around the world. You have a scary, muscular man screaming at you. I, it, I it, think it, that's you know, sort of part of the course. Yeah, that's, kind of, that's, you can't uh, have it without you can, it. You can ask everybody, yeah. no matter what military they served in, who, you know, they'll be like, I had the worst drill instructor i had the worst ncos i had yeah. the worst legionnaire instructor whoever it is yes. they'll be like no my training was harder than yours yeah. and that's it's a, a bit like fishermen with giant catfish yeah. it's kind yeah, of a who, yeah. who had the harder you know yeah. entry entry level training yes. when they joined the military yeah. now the interesting thing is if you're a foreign volunteer you're getting the same thing you're not you're mm-hmm. not going in as some cutthroat soldier of fortune yes. you're going in as a as a brand new yeah. trooper private in the Rhodesian military, and they don't care. You're, yeah. getting, you're getting the exact same even, treatment. Even if you had had a lot of very uh, distinguished foreign service previously, because yeah. some of the men who enlisted in the RLA were Vietnam veterans yeah. or had fought in the Congo during the 60s, uh, they were still getting yelled at and called pukes and yeah, <laughs> being forced wrong. to do all sorts of humiliating things. They made it. They make a guy eat oatmeal. Yes, there's a great story where Mr. Oatmeal. Yeah, where they're going out to do survival training, where they basically abandon the men in a the bush for a week to survive. To survive, yeah, to survive. To, to survive. <laughs> to survive. <laughs> there's much more I could say there, but many of the men tried to um, sneak food into uh, the course. As you do. As you do. As you do. And one of the men brought basically what is sort of a freeze-dried kind of... Well, not freeze-dried, but... It might have been. It has to be... uh, It's a sort of powdered oatmeal mix that you had to add water to to sort of make it expand and then cook it. Um, And one man is discovered with this on him. And the... Like an NCO. Yeah. The the, NCO. The the NCO makes him... Eat it without water, which Chris Cox describes as must have been like eating sawdust. And then the NCO says, well, you must have been, must be thirsty after eating all that dry stuff. Drink both of your full canteens of water. The man doubles over as the stuff expands in his stomach. <laughs> anyway, so yes, discipline was not, uh, nothing to shirk about in the yeah, it was, Rhodesian Light Infantry. It was, uh... I hear a lot of complaints about it from the Rhodesian vets that the, the, the yes. level of discipline compared to South Africa. Yeah. Which again, it's not like the SADF in that era in in the sixties and so the eighties was lax. Was, either. Lax either, yeah. but it, just the Rhodesians, whenever they mm-hmm. went up there, and this is perhaps um, I'm kind of I'm kind of changing trajectories, but there was a guy uh, AJ Bellum whose whose book I've read. Same thing. He, he compares. He, he complains rather about the treatment of him while he's going through a salute scout selection he goes to south mm-hmm. africa and he's treated like an adult yeah and he's like that's that's yeah. never happened in my whole career it's I, always been screaming and shouting yeah there there's a there's a, a quote somewhere in the book where it says rli stands for rhodesia's little idiots <laughs> so that's how the brass sort of treated yeah, and felt yeah. about the uh the men on the ground so 
there's a, there's an important point made during his training though. There's a, there's a there's a reason bond, yes. there's a mess behind the madness. Yeah, no, what the if any of you are wondering what the Rhodesian Light Infantry was, we'll generally refer to it as the RLI in this podcast. But the main duty of the RLI was manning fire forces, a task at which the battalion proved particularly adept. A fire force was responsible for re- reacting to any guerrilla incident, such as ambushes, OP sightings, or enemy contacts, with as much haste as possible in order to cut off and kill the guerrillas before they could flee. That passage I just read directly from the book and yes that's why the book is called fire force and it was this tactic used yeah rapid response to any guerrilla activity yeah virtually yeah vertical envelopment you have ground elements airborne elements Mm -hmm. yes all coordinating and squeezing any uh of these terrorist cadres that were in rapidity and force i think you could say were the two mottos of the rhodesian security forces especially these guys the communist groups um, led by, respectively led by Robert Mugabe and uh, Joshua Nakomo, mm-hmm. were organized into like the, the basic cadres. So we can think in terms of a um, military formation, maybe almost like half, like two fire teams, like very, very small crews coming into Rhodesia. Uh, you know, they're obviously not fighting pitch battles. Yes. They, they, you know, unless they're outside of Rhodesia, there were a few pitch battles. But during the, yeah. during the, through the course of the Bush War, you have these small cadres coming in, and generally, they were very, very small and and very, very nimble. Right? Mm-hmm. They could they could kind of get in and get out. They could do their business. They could lay a landmine, for example. They can distribute propaganda. They can maybe maybe whack a few village elders that are working with the Rhodesians. Yes, there is uh, some. They, we'll, they, we'll get into this much later, but there is some rather nasty uh, yeah, examples not... <laughs> of gorillas. Making villagers see yeah. the things their way. They don't have a lot of rules of engagement. They're just there yes. to win. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, it's not necessarily like... Yeah. I, I won't make a comment on whether or not that's moral. Like, you're trying to yes. win a war, I guess. It's just the war... Like, no no one... Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, no one won this war, I yes. think. No. Uh, if you look at... If you look at how things turned out, definitely this is one of those. Maybe, maybe Robert Mugabe. I don't think personally. Any, personally, personally, won personally yeah. he won, but I don't but think I don't anyone think, yeah, else. I don't in think the any country. of the, the men and women that that fought under him won that war. Yes. I don't think any no, of yeah. Joshua. Definitely, Joshua Nakomo was kicked out of the country later. So mm-hmm. those guys didn't win the war. Only Robert Mugabe personally won the war, yes. and like maybe the cronies, like directly yeah. uh, subordinate to him, won the war. So you have these small groups going in, and they would basically commit your standard acts of terrorism they would lay i you know improvise explosive devices or oftentimes not improvise like le- legitimate landmines yeah. you know issued to them by the soviets or the north koreans or the chinese mm-hmm. they would terrorize villages and protect villages under rhodesian control they would coerce people to join them either through brute force through offering sexual favors because you know women were part of the cadres mm-hmm. and they they were very let's put it this way lax with their morals, yeah, and uh, they 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 basically had, they would offer you sex, mm-hmm. or money, or clothes. Clothes yeah. was a very common one. They'd offer you jeans because jeans were quite popular yeah. in that era. I mean, this is this is still the '60s and '70s. Jeans yes. were, denim was making a yeah, and it's making not a like, comeback. Yeah. It's not like these are ignorant people. No. Um, the the Shona and Nidabili population were pretty worldly people, as far as mm-hmm. we know. 
the Rhodes the white Rhodesians were very worldly people. It's not like they were not aware of the rest of the world. Yeah, they're, Rhodesia they're, was they're not like, yeah, we wanted jeans and yeah. and and uh, you know uh, whatever the fashion was in the sixties. Yeah. Neither of us were, were alive during this era, yeah. so we can only speculate. Yeah. But jeans were mm-hmm. jeans were very um, popular, and they, you know they'd offer you a pair of jeans, and then you you know come fight for Zanu. Hell, I'd fight uh, for a pair of jeans. Exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> These small groups motivated oftentimes by something very material rather than... Yes. And then they, they slowly get indoctrinated in the communist theory. Yes. And then they would show up and they'd commit these acts of terror. And the, the RLI's job was basically to track down these small groups and squeeze them and not let them escape this this web of yes. vertical envelopment. And it worked. It worked yeah, Search uh, and destroy missions, basically. Yeah. Um, there was, there's been regarded by... One notable scholar in, in, the, in the U.S. Marine Corps and, and a bunch of others, as they were, they were the killing machine. They yeah. had within in, in, one of know. the most effective, probably counterinsurgency regiments of the Cold War. I've heard yeah. a number of people describe them as such. Yeah. So, and and part of that with with Fire Force is parachute training. Now we we got We got to emphasize here. We are reading bits of the book, but we are skipping a lot of it. We are. Yes. We're, we're literally right now. We're going to be skipping ten chapters ahead. Yeah, we're jumping uh, around. We're jumping around. Bit. And if mm-hmm. you if you want to deep dive into this book a little bit further, because again, we're skip. We're going to be throughout these podcasts here as we cover Fire Force. We're going to be skipping chapters upon chapters. You have to yes. get this book if you want to really understand what mm-hmm. chris cox is getting at we're just we're scratching the surface yes, for you yeah. basically yeah and w- what the purpose of this i think podcast in general is we're using classic memoirs and important books on military history to expand upon we're not going to read you the book we're yeah we, we're we, we highly recommend all these books for you to read them yourselves there, if, if you uh, feel so inclined there's you know i don't want to plug anybody yeah i'm not getting paid but there's yeah. there's services that'll read the books for you if you don't want to read them yourself yes so. yeah yeah me i'll come to your house yeah for you with the cookies and milk yeah all right so he, parachute training that's that's part of it because it's it's helicopter envelopment, right? Mm-hmm. And it's ground element, so it's standard your conventional infantry training, which Chris Cox does get throughout his his whole time. Uh, shooting drills, Drake drills. We'll I'll, I'll talk about Drake drills in a moment, but parachute mm-hmm. parachute training. Yes, uh, and parachute training was something a lot of the uh, Rhodesian uh, recruits were quite surprised and indeed afraid of. In fact. Uh, here's a little excerpt. Smith, the mag gunner, was also terrified and said adamantly. I'm not going. If God had wanted us to fly, he would have given us wings. <laughs> wish I was a... It's yeah. like the opposite of that, that John Edmonds song, Wish I Was a yeah. Blue Job. Wish I Was a Blue Job, yeah. Up in the sky. If, yes. um, well, aren't Blue Jobs the... Um, the Air Force. Yes, but aren't they the ones flying the planes, not jumping yeah, I think out so. of them? I think, I think so. That's probably... They want to be, they'd rather be flying than, than jumping out of them. Yeah. Yes, and I think that's a, a common sentiment by many yeah. recruit paratroopers throughout exactly. history. Yeah. Yeah, with the twelve years to go, you know. I, but instead, I'm a brown job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Till I die. Yeah. With twelve years to go in the RLI, right? Mm-hmm. So that's anyway. If you guys haven't heard that song, you should look it up. Uh, I wish I was a blue job by John yes. Edmund, a very yeah. famous Rhodesian folk singer. So there's there's parachute training involved. There's uh, helicopter training, and he he he's. He's um he's also getting survival training because they're fighting in Africa. This is a yes. This is not an easy environment to fight in. 
Yes, and, no, it is um, very wild, very harsh country. Yeah, and I think most of the combat operations that take place, that, that Chris Cox is involved in at this stage, um, the Rhodesian Light Infantry had banned the use of shorts at, at this stage just because mm-hmm. of, of how gnarly the environments were. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, for those that are unaware, which if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are aware, is the Rhodesian light infantry especially were very well known for their very liberal use of uh, shorts we have this picture in our mind of the rhodesian light infantry soldier wearing sh- short shorts into battle yes with an fal and a t-shirt he's not mm-hmm. wearing a lot of gear and he's like winning out you know he's, he's like killing yeah. all these terrorists somehow when when in reality they were they're pretty they're by yes. by this stage in the war when he's involved in yeah. 1976 1977 they had banned the use of short shorts yes. because their legs were literally getting ripped up by the thorns. Yeah. There certainly the were soldiers who looked like that, especially early on, but, yeah, but they... the more and more they learned that the environment... I mean, Chris Cox uh, himself has quite a few run-ins with nasty wildlife, which we'll get into later. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it's, yeah. And just the bushes themselves could reduce a man to ribbons. Yeah. Let's talk about that survival training, dude. Yes, there um, is one story I'd particularly... Yeah like to bring up because i found it extremely cool and extremely interesting is there was one group of men who they're they're trainees right they're They're, trainees they're they're trainees and they are alive yeah they they haven't none of these men have seen combat yet which is part of the more reason why this is so amazing but they were the men of yellow squad this is this is three commando or this is the training troop at this this is the training this is the training troop and basically 60 of them uh formed a line in the tall grass and basically flushed out a bush buck which is a very aggressive form of antelope he describes and basically ran it down slowly and then beat it to death with rocks and sticks and then cooked and ate and this is exactly how uh native africans have been hunting for thousands of years you've actually you're like i'm kind of clueless about this because i've never actually been to africa but you've been to tanzania i have been to tanzania yes met some bushmen i have met actual maasai tribesmen they're extremely nice very generous people smart it works yes they're very very intelligent very very hardy people who um are, are very good at surviving off the land i mean the 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 Maasai barely even drink water. They drink the milk and blood of their cows. They're a pastoral. You know all people. about this, Doctor Livingston. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, I lived with the uh, Maasai <laughs> for a year. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> wonderful chaps. Wonderful. Uh, but yeah. yes, I, I've never seen anything like that. But I've heard in constant uh, you know documentaries or something that, and I've seen. I think there's even footage of it in that film from a- about Africa. Africa Adios, 19... Uh, yeah, that, with that, that absolutely uh, incredible uh, documentary. We should do a podcast on we that. We will movie. definitely do a podcast on that. So, the, yeah, the, the Rhodesians are learning survival tactics, they're learning yes. uh, gunfighting tactics. I talk a little about the gunfighting. They, they do the, you know, they do drake drills. I think it is discussed mm-hmm. in Fire Force, which basically yes. Now, is what is a drake kill. drill, Hank? It was a tactic by a certain like colonel or major drake some officer named drake um who was a rhodesian officer and basically the theory is is quite simple kill the cover kill the enemy kill the cover kill the enemy mm-hmm. yeah. right uh, you you basically identify 
things on the range, right? They would engage the thing that they think is cover. Mm-hmm. Pop, 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 double tap, double tap, double tap, here and there. And slowly zigzag and shoot their way across the field. And then basically, the, 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 again, the instructors go up. They show the the recruit or the trainee how they actually score. The, the targets are actually hidden among the cover. I'm not explaining it very well. You'd have to ask some actual, like, the DJs. Yeah, no, not no, no, no. But you get the theory. Basically, kill the cover, kill the enemy. Yes. So you're actually working with nothing on the range. So you don't see your target. So normally you go out on the range, and from, like, my experiences in the military, you have a target in front of you. It's 100 meters away. The relay staff will be like, okay, troops, like, prepare to engage, you know, get ready, load, make ready. On your own time, fire, and you start shooting, and then you you walk up to your target, and you're like, oh, I scored, you know, I, I hit this, this, and this, you know, I, I got a I got a one inch group, I'm doing real good. Uh, that doesn't mean anything to the Rhodesians. Now, obviously, for basic marksmanship to understand your marksmanship principles, yeah, absolutely, okay. that's part of it. But in a combat situation, you're going to be shooting at people behind cover or mm-hmm. behind concealment. So the the theory was, you walk out on the range, you don't see. What you're actually, you just think, like, where would be the enemy be? If you're hearing snaps going over your head and you can't see muzzle flashes, you still have to engage, but what are you actually shooting at? You can't just be shooting blindly to make yourself feel better. Mm-hmm. That is not going to win you the firefight. You have to be engaging deliberately and engaging targets deliberately. Where would the enemy be hiding? Where would they theoretically be shooting at you from? So with all their troops deliberately firing in this manner, specifically focusing, not just randomly spraying and praying but firing deliberately to points of cover or potential concealment so you see a tree yeah definitely nail that tree a few times see a shrub beside that tree nail that shrub a few times see that rock shoot around that rock a little bit mm-hmm. maybe something will move out of it maybe the rock will move maybe the rock is not a rock <laughs> maybe Some that tree poor is not a rhinoceros a... just thundering <laughs> through the bush yeah <laughs> so it's deliberate shooting, and it's basically scanning your way across. And you can imagine having the fire force tactic employed with the shooting. Yes. But these guys also very skilled bushmen. They're mm. comfortable in the bush. They've survived in the worst circumstance with no food. Yes. And they're willing to beat wild Antelope animals to, to, death. to death with rocks. Yes. These troops were very squared away when they came up against these very, very small and generally less well-trained, less well-equipped terrorist cadres coming in from Mozambique and, and uh, yes. Zambia. Mm-hmm. Yes. They did a yeah. very, very good job. The Rhodesians were certainly better trained than their opponents. That's that's not to uh, throw any shade at their opponents. Their opponents did very well with what they were given. Like but, they did theoretically win. But the Yeah, they <laughs> yeah. did theoretically win. Yeah. But the, the Rhodesian uh, forces were very... I, I guess you could say tactically superior, probably, in many yeah, respects. Yeah, they, they are a lot more tactically sound. Yes. And and drake shooting is mm-hmm. something I think a lot of militaries don't kind of think about. They, they, they often, yes. you know, they'll have you out on the range. Mm-hmm. I see it everywhere. It's just like, maybe they'll have a moving target. The target moves left, right, or you have to move. Yeah. And it's like, cool, but your target's going to be behind cover. Yes. Right? Realistically, if you're practicing for a combat scenario, you should be going out and you don't see your target. Right, mm-hmm. and you're just imagining they're still shooting at you. Where are they? In that situation, I remember being in in like with like West Gear, which is like like a laser gun mm-hmm. in the in the army. We'd be shot at from somewhere, and I'd be like, okay, what am I supposed to do? And they're like, oh, just put grounds down range. I'm like, okay, but where? And I didn't I didn't 
kind of register like yeah. I should be shooting deliberately behind points of cover and behind points of concealment that the enemy could uh, potentially be behind. Mm-hmm. It was interesting to me the um, going back just briefly to parachute training. I believe the Rhodesians used a system that isn't really that different from what was used in, say, the Second World War, didn't they? They use the same, so they use static line jump. Yeah, that's that's yeah. exactly what I'm talking about. There was a little bit of halo going on, but it wasn't as common. Yes. Like for the Rhodesian uh, light yeah. infantry and the RER, yeah. definitely it was. Yeah, it was static. Well, line. and they talk. And they use C-47s. Yeah, and Chris Cox specifically states that Rhodesians tried to keep paratroopers in the air as little as possible, so guerrillas firing up couldn't hit them. And pick them well, off. They were, yeah, they were, on, uh, they were so on. They were on C 47s Yeah, they're on Dakota. So they are, were usually dropped from below five hundred feet, which yeah, is scary. Yeah, I, I've never jumped out of a plane. I'm a bit afraid of heights, but and I don't know if you've. I don't think you've, no, have you. Have you ever? No, I've never actually. No, but um, from what I have a friend who does, and he tells me that yeah, below five hundred feet. That's you, you better pull that cord pretty quickly. <laughs> well, it, it's static line, so there's no pull. Yeah, that's I know. That's yeah. theory. So yes. they come out, the canopy mm-hmm. expands, and as soon as the canopy expands, they're like on the ground. Yes, yeah, but yeah, just saying yeah, that would be a very uh, nerve wracking experience. Yeah, and they're jumping to super low. One thing I was going to mention this later, but I think we might as well mention it now is um, uh, not just uh, the white RLI soldiers parachuted, but also black RAR troops parachuted and. For them, it was an even more terrifying experience because a lot of Rhodesian African rifles hadn't seen a plane at this close yeah, their before, first rather than yeah. let alone jumping out of one. So for them, it was an even more alien experience, he describes. Yeah, it's like jumping out of a monstrous dragon. For, like, you know, yes, at least yeah. in, the, in the Second yeah. World War, you have a lot of guys that had never been on aircraft before. Yes. Uh, with the parachute regiment yeah. in the British Army and the you know 101st Airborne, 82nd Airborne in the Second World War, these guys at least understood the concept of an aeroplane. Yes. They weren't totally, even if they are products of the Great Depression, they didn't have a lot of formal yeah. education. They would have known, like, oh, like, or, you know, or, Orville Wright. Yeah flew the first kind of plane yeah, around. Yeah, they, they, and then and yeah. then and then there's like dog fighting world war yeah. one there's like eddie uh, rickenbacker and who's it? charles Lindbergh. yes like these are these are well-known people and yeah. and amelia Earhart and amelia Earhart. Amelia like they're, Earhart, they yeah. knew aviation and everyone at that point in here to like the red baron and all and that the like red people baron. people knew people what knew planes, planes were, were. these uh, guys do not yeah no uh your, your average yeah, Shona or Netabili Shona or tribesmen. tribesmen would probably... they're, they're like very little formal education. Yeah, they, they, they would they would understand like they'd have an idea of planes. Obviously, they'd see them flying overhead, and they'd be like, "Okay, that's a thing with people in it that flies across the sky." But jumping out of one would be such a foreign concept to them that it was it was truly a terrifying yeah, experience. One of, one of my one of my pals, um, I can't I can't name him. I'll call him Madala. Okay. I think you know of Madala. He was. I probably a, do know Madonna. He was a. I think he was second second battalion RER. Mm-hmm. Told his B company. Yes. And he was involved in the training troop Salute Scouts. Sir, two troop two troop Salute Scouts. I'm not sure which uh, RER battalion he was, but he was two troop uh, Salute Scouts. And he did the jump master course at Fort Bragg with the U.S. Special Forces. Mm-hmm. He got really, really comfortable, comfortable and confident uh, in pair jumps, and he actually had a bunch of operational jumps. His one of his last operational jumps 
actually wasn't with the Rhodesians, it was with the Zimbabwean army, and he jumped into Mozambique, as far as I understand mm-hmm. it. A super low jump, same thing with like a C-47, mm-hmm. and he was with the Zimbabwean SAS at the time. You know, he, he did get a medal citation. I'm not even going to say what the medal is, because nice. I can't opsec, but... Yes. He shwacked a lot of dudes. Shwacked a they're, lot of they're, dudes. They're brave dudes. They were doing, st- they were yep. doing like D-Days every mm-hmm. day. Basically, yeah. Which which, which is incredible. I mean, he's, you know, I've heard some no, stories I... from this dude, and he's told me just some of the stories that are unreal. And I've seen his mental citations. What these guys were able to accomplish was, mm-hmm. there's just very few comparable situations in military history where especially in the 60s and 70s where dudes were doing jumps sometimes more than once a day. Yeah, no, yeah, actually a few times a day. That's a few uh, times mentioned a day. in the yep. book, yeah. That's that's the RLI and the RAR. Yeah, no, they were, the fire, uh, force, yeah, the fire force tactics certainly were demanding. They got some pretty rough printing, and if you're coming to Rhodesia as a mercenary... Yeah. Or thinking you're going to be a mercenary wasn't going to it wasn't going to turn out well for you. Yeah, you you would you better be up to snuff. There were certainly lots of foreign fighters in Rhodesia, but people who thought it would be a walk in the park or just sort of naive adventure-seeking men. We might get into it a little bit in the next podcast. The idea of mercenaries in in mm-hmm. general because the concept of mercenaries is very very murky because yes. you have units like the Gurkhas in the British army you have the French foreign legion you have the Spanish foreign legion you have the Swiss yes. guard you have these active quote unquote mercenary units all over the world yet mo- most of whom like when people think of mercenary i think the image that comes to mind is they think of some guy who will just fight for whoever pays him and well that certainly applies in some things a lot of mercenaries are actually quite loyal and de- quote-unquote mercenaries are quite loyal and devoted soldiers who've just happened to serve with a number of yeah. militaries. It's, it's like, kind of... uh, Laurie Turney would be a good example. He's fought with, served with three different Larry armies. Thorne. Larry Thorne for American listeners. Larry Thorne for American yeah. uh, listeners. Yeah. Served with three different armies, but always in the service of what he saw as anti-communism. He wasn't just, you know, oh, the Soviets give me money, I'll fight for them. He Yeah, yeah you'll, it, you'll find a lot of times it's it's they're, they're there for political motivations yeah um if they're there for reasons of like seeking adventure well very quickly things do not turn out very well for them yeah unless they're remarkably psychologically resistant people yeah because dealing with first off the training um yeah which which is harsh as we which is which is quite harsh yeah and we we have a very good example of well chris cox talks about like back to the book chris does mention a lot of foreign volunteers, and we can we can get get yes. into those. And actually, let's get into those now. The, the foreign yeah. volunteers. There's, there's um, a lot of Brits. Yeah, I think there's a few uh, stories of Brits that I think we should share. Um, while still in training, there was a soldier called Sammy Behan who was with Chris in there. Who, and I quote here, "Fucking prats," muttered Sammy Behan. Recently arrived from the British Paris as our trucks drove out of the School of Infantry Greats. They wouldn't last two minutes in Ulster. So, some of the men who were with they did some trucks, active duty yeah, have, have done, uh, and yeah, quite impressive active duty. Was, uh, where uh, the Brits, there's a, there's a few stories about them which are, which are quite interesting. Uh, there's another story where you have actually British and American soldiers arguing about whose militaries are better while they're in the Rhodesian military. 
I'll just read a bit here. You fucking pummies don't know what wars are, he antagonized. You're always getting fucking beating. Bullshit, blessed bod. Name me one, you imbecilic convict. What about the American War of Independence? <laughs> ah, Griffo Bob, side cut. Condescendingly. That was just a slight setback. Who marched south from Canada and burned the White House in 1812? Who laid waste to the countryside devastated those sniveling colonial peasants? I mean, it's like something you read in the YouTube comment section. <laughs> yeah, and it's just, it's interesting. You had this um, microcosm of all these guys. Generally, they were there to resist it, like communism. Yes, they saw it yeah. as the intrusion of communist powers into a a country that was trying to. And that's uh, uh, They're trying to maintain a a multiracial society in a harmonious way, rather yes. than a insane congo style catastrophe which yes. which the, you know the conflict in the in congo the democratic republic of congo now is still ongoing yes and insane and i i, I honestly i don't know what faction is what right now no yeah still... i'm not <laughs> where does one end and the other begin is another question yeah, the, the wars there in, in in central africa have been kind of ongoing and yes. rhodesia Around the time of their unilateral declaration of independence in 1965, mm -hmm. they saw these refugees streaming in from the Congo, yes. and they're like, we and don't want this. And they'd supported uh, Katanga before, which was another state which tried to sort of, I guess, find a different way rather than what was going on, but yeah. it was also... Except subsumed. the Katangans at least had... Belgian support, yes, passively, right, yes. and they had CIA support. Yeah. The Rhodesians had nothing. So yes, they, the Rhodesians. These had... guys were were more, uh, I guess, pure in in, a, in the sense that they didn't have official foreign governments backing them in any way, shape, and form. There was there, like the U.S. government. The West was against them as much as the Eastern Bloc yes, was against them. The, they were, they yeah, were against they, the yes. world. Um, yeah, and, it's... and in fact, the South Africans were kind of behind the scenes very much against them too because yes. they they kind of ruined uh and, yeah. South speaking African about sort of motivations for fighting communism that's actually in the same sort of conversation where they're um ripping on each other about past historical conflicts one of the british guys says mccall don't even talk to me about wars you fucking wallies can't even sort out a little guerrilla insurgency like vietnam you should have come to us we would have shown you how we cleaned up malaya so a lot of these men are coming and, and mccall from... mccall was uh he was a airborne guy yes yeah who no served who who had you know i think a bronze star and a few purple hearts and in, in nam he was a yes pretty distinguished so a man. lot of these men are coming from the uh, viewpoint that, you know, they're, and this is the height of the Cold War, that there is very much the ideas of, you know, domino theory and that communism was spreading, which it certainly was in many countries. And these men, many of the foreign volunteers, um, they understood, they, they understood that and they, they saw their participation yeah. as a way of fighting against that. They had either fought, they had fought in these conflicts, these yes. domino theory yeah. conflicts, Malaya, mm -hmm. Vietnam, some of them Korea. Yes. Uh, yeah. Or a, not really a, not a communist style conflict to the same extent, but some were certainly served in Northern, Northern Ireland. Ireland um, Yemen, was, Aden. Yeah, potentially. Some in, some in the Belgian Congo. Um, I don't know if there's any who served in like 
any Latin American conflict, but I wouldn't be a hundred percent surprised. I personally don't know of any examples, but yes. I would not be surprised if there are a few Cuban exiles. Yeah, that there. would not surprise me one bit. Uh, we will have to look into that one day. Were there any yeah, were Spanish Cuban speakers in the? Now I know there were Cuban exile dudes all over yes. Congo, so I wouldn't yes. be surprised if a few dudes. Yeah. Now here's a the deal: they probably live on the down low right now. <laughs> yeah, because they didn't. They they picked. Let's let's put it this way: they lost in Cuba and they lost in Rhodesia, and they went to South Africa. They lost in South Africa <laughs> yeah. too. So maybe they don't they're have the best. Probably not. For, yeah, they're probably they not uh, <laughs> broadcasting their presence. Yeah, there's a funny uh, you know in the it's it's cool that the you know a lot of Rhodesians now even though if they're you know technically they did they lost that war because they mm-hmm. lost that war politically. Yes. And there's not a whole lot at the end of the day they could do when mm-hmm. you look at all the backroom politics and stuff that we'll we will get into another episode because that's yes. a whole other can of worms oh, like yeah. that backroom politics is going on in the in the bush and i don't think a lot of people understand the influence of south africa i mean the south africans played a lot of dirty games yeah no the, and they and they kind of in some ways almost played they both played sides themselves of the fence they, they to some extent and then at the end of the day yeah. they just played themselves yeah no because they they and went down as well they went down they went down hard yeah and it was it was mm-hmm. justified in many ways, the you know, because apartheid wasn't very justified at all. No, no. If you the, look at yes, why yeah. why that system was implemented the way it was in uh, in the fifties. Yes. Also, it was inevitably like going to fall one yeah. way or the other. There was no way you could have maintained a system like that in the conditions in Africa during that period so of history. So, with with the Rhodesian on the Rhodesian side of things, there was a lot of like backroom politics. So they they didn't they still lost the war. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, the Rhodesian Bush War did not go in their favor. They had to their internal settlement didn't work. The Muzariwa mm-hmm. government fell, and then you had the government of Robert Mugabe and Nkomo for a while. Yes. So you, you you didn't and all they, the lovely uh, yeah the, the policies associated with that yeah. But that being said, the Rhodesians are still a very those yeah. that are still around are very cheerful. I, yes. I see this all the time. I was hanging out with, with one of the Rhodesian vets and at the range with them this past summer. And he was wearing a shirt. On the back of it, it said, South, Southern Africa War Game Second Place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you see, you don't, you don't get that kind of dark humor from... I mean, I guess you get it from like vets and stuff. But yeah, it's, it's yeah. kind of funny that... Yeah. They're well, willing to be that dark about it, like we won second place. <laughs> it's it's like the the uh, it's like there's a number of other John Edmund songs. I mean, in the bigger scheme of things, you know. So I, I think a lot of them look back with uh, sorrow, but also pride. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They, um, and they they're willing to joke about it. Yes, I get a lot of that. Like my war was. They're mm-hmm. like, you know, it's cool that you guys, you, you younger people, are interested in the war, but they're not like. Um, you can't talk about that. That's not their thing. Yeah, the yeah. Rhodesians are actually, interestingly enough, especially the native ones, they're and any of the British people. British volunteers are gregarious and they're a little they're a little bit uh, gross. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're, they're kind of mad lads, actually. They're kind of mad lads. Um, we talk about Mister uh, Mister Jerkoff there. Oh yes, yeah. No, there's a uh, another way to sort of, I guess. <laughs> So it's funny because the, the the Rhodesians. Okay, let's let's put it this way: the Rhodesians have this there's this mythos of them as these ultra conservative white people yes. that fought for like because in UDI in the Unilateral Declaration of Independence, when Ian Smith yes. declares independence from from the United Kingdom, he says we're doing this for Christian civilization. And yes. then you go to Cranbourne Barracks and yeah. you look at 
what was yeah, going which, on in Cranbourne yeah. Beer. It's the, the really gay, homoerotic. <laughs> there's there's a very thing. big uh, gap between <laughs> Ian Smith and what's happening in the barracks. Yeah. Uh, and one way to, I guess, um, prepare your troops for the horrors of war is by showing them something almost as bad, which was there is a man who... What's his name? I do not remember his name, but we... Dude, you gotta pull out his name. We gotta name and shame him. We gotta name and... I'm not... You, I don't think you can shame this man. No, he can't uh, yeah. That's the thing. He can't shame the Rhodesians. Yeah, no. Yeah, um, that's why they have a sense of humor. He can't even shame Yes, uh, this... About this guy. Yeah, no, this fellow would um, basically publicly masturbate in the barracks <laughs> and look men right in the eyes and say, yeah. this cock has effed more girls than you will ever do. And, um... Yeah, oh, he never he, showered. Yes, his... No, 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 that was a this different is, guy. Oh, they all never showered, I think. There was one who specifically... This is, um... John, um... Connolly. Yes, Connolly. Was, Connolly yeah, was yeah. The, who is a, um... I believe a Northern Irish... Origi he had an Irish name. I don't know if he was actually from Ireland, but he's a Brit. Yeah, he he's was. A yeah, he had a uh, he had a bit of an accent there. Right in that, but he would. Um, he was British Army too. Yeah, he he publicly masturbate while men came in the room and like look them in the eyes and, and he'd just be like strong. <laughs> <just be> like, <laughs> How you doing, bro? Yeah, no, yeah. No, he had no shame. Yeah, yeah. And he said and it was like an initiation. They, the, the new troops. Yeah, they, they, whenever he here, there were new yeah. troopies coming in. So the Chris Cox. That's how he meets him. Yes. He's like, oh man, I'm so excited. I finally because they, they initially when they're trainees. Yeah. We've been talking about their training process. They wear the the brass uh, cap badge of the Rhodesian Light Infantry. They later move on to the silver, silver insignia, mm -hmm. and when he gets that silver insignia on. He's an official, like, commando, right? He's like, oh, I'm badass. I've done all this training. Yeah. And he shows up to the line. He's like, these guys are going to be so straight-edged and, like, yeah. hardcore. Yeah. And the first thing he sees is this guy, like, hey, sup? And he just, out. Yeah. And he just yeah. jerking it. And he literally, like, ejaculates as he's, like, walking by. Yeah. He's like, hey, bro. After seeing Connolly's massive pecker, the Xanu like, looked a little less terrifying. <laughs> I think that was the yeah, idea. He, yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. But, yeah, and uh, that gets to the fact that there are many motivations for Rhodesian troops to come there, but yeah. not all were uh, as not all were noble as noble. fighting communism. Yeah. Um, other more nefarious yes. reasons. In fact, uh, I I've let the Brits have a bit of uh, bit of tooting their own horns. Okay, so well, I, I gotta I gotta preface it with this. Some people think that those political motivations are for well, the elephant in the room is like, oh, they're fighting for a white supremacist government. You look at the actual primary source like this, you get yeah, <laughs> you get the complete opposite. So yes, um, a sergeant named Sergeant Coombe, <laughs> of course, because of course he is. Yeah, Sergeant um, Coombe. Yes. Yeah, Sergeant Coombe. Who, after a man was getting a, a needle in the arse for um, to, to protect him against venereal disease or, or to treat something he already had, told. Um, Nicholson, who was a British soldier, you fucking pommies are all the same. The only reason you come out here is to get some black meat. All that crap of fighting communism, huh? So yes, uh, despite their yeah, um, some of them the reputation as uh, white, some of them <laughs> white were supremacists. Many of the Rhodesians were quite fond of the black, black ladies, and in the, fact, yeah. uh, one of the most interesting fellows' uh, shoulders in the book is sort of his nickname. Um, 
eventually married a black girl. And he was uh, interesting because all of these men were sort of didn't shower enough, but he purposely like made himself just as disgusting as possible. And when asked why, he said, basically, well, they'll be looking for guys who are clean and don't look like they're part of the foliage. <laughs> it's like that family guy meme with Peter yeah. and the clowns. <laughs> They'll be looking for clean dudes. Yeah. yeah. So these guys, uh, some of them literally were foreign volunteers. And in fact, I would yes. imagine a good number of them, especially in the UK. Yeah. In, in this time in the 60s, before a lot of the waves of immigration that happened in the 70s and 80s, they were looking for black girlfriends. Yes, no, some, for, for some, some of them, uh, some exotic, of them, exotic relationships. Some of them were very much, uh, very much, yeah, yeah men, men of the. Uh, they weren't very good white, white nationalists. Yes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> white nationalist guys with ebony wives. Yeah, right. <laughs> should make that a Facebook group. Anyway, oh, it uh, probably is a Facebook group. Probably is a gab group uh, or something. Yeah. As we were talking about before, I don't know if there's any guys who spoke Spanish in the Rhodesian army, but there certainly were a fair number of guys who spoke Portuguese. So why don't we get on to that topic? Yeah, the Portuguese were... There were a lot of Portuguese volunteers. They were hardcore. There's, you know, mm. they had their tattooed oftentimes. Very much they were so. They very proud of their prior service in Angola and, and Mozambique and, Mozambique yes. and, and uh, Guinea-Bissau before those mm. countries collapsed in 1974 mm -hmm. with the Carnation Revolution. So basically the, the, the uh, Estado... The Estado Novo, Novo, which was the Portuguese government prior to the Carnation Revolution. Yeah. Who... Sorry. <laughs> they they had basically left-wing revolution in that country. The country was kind of strange as far as countries are concerned because the yes. guy was... The, the leader up until 1970 was this guy named Antonio Salazar. Yes. And he was... Uh, you can't even classify what he was. He was very esoteric. He didn't really believe in politics. He was yeah. like, I don't run. He did. The if you're to de facto look at him on a surface level, you'd be like, okay, he ran a one party state. Mm -hmm. He was an authoritarian strongman. He was friends with Franco. Yeah. He didn't really, because he was alive during World War II and he was a leader during the Second World War. He'd been leader since the 1920s yes. and 30s. He looked at these governments and he was like, they're kind of lame. Mm -hmm. I don't like this party thing. I don't like subservience to the party. Yeah. He was big on the church. He was big on the Catholic church. He was church. a very... He ran what was basically a Catholic state. And Sal that wasn't really even a state. Because he, yeah. he said, like, the, my party doesn't exist. But he did have a party infrastructure. Yeah. He, like, he's like, yeah. there's no elections because my party doesn't... Yes. Yeah. Politics is not real. <laughs> Politics is, is a spook. Yeah, you so agree? He, he's kind of esoteric. And yeah. I, I, I'm probably like butchering an explanation of him yes. right now. Yeah. No, he's very, we, he's could, we could maybe have another episode where we talk a lot about Salazar that, and the port. But his main... As far as we're concerned, his main thing was that... Salazar didn't want to dissolve the Portuguese Empire yes. after World War II. Uh, decolonization in the starting in the late forties and going full throttle in the fifties and sixties was happening to the uh, the French Empire, the British Empire, the the Dutch Empire, the Belgians. But he had been there. The Portuguese had been there since the fifteenth yeah, century. The Portuguese, the Portuguese really fought on very long up until there was Salazar died, and then his. There was this Carnation Revolution, which was basically a... Uh, a left-wing military coup. Yeah, left-wing military coup, which... Um, they, they weren't communists, but they certainly were left-leaning liberals. Lefty, yeah. And um, they basically dismantled the, the Portuguese Empire because they thought... This is something that... It's a waste of money, it's a waste of lives. Yeah, this is something the Estado Navo was doing. This is not what we're doing. We're... 
sort of, and it, so Portuguese Africa kind of collapsed. Yeah. Now them. a lot of these guys have been fighting their own bush wars, multiple bush wars for decades at this point and a lot of them did show up to Rhodesia so there's a large number of volunteers that came from these former Portuguese colonies mm -hmm. notably Angola Mozambique uh, Guinea-Bissau they showed up oftentimes with a whole schlack ton of experience in fact a lot of the tactics that they employed in those respective mm -hmm. bush wars were against a similar enemy because they're foreign they're oftentimes moving from different between yes. borders and they were worked in small cadres, and they were armed with Soviet or Chinese weaponry. Mm -hmm. These guys showed up and dealt with the situation in the in the, or the, at least the Portuguese showed up and dealt with the same situation in all of these little brush fire conflicts. They dealt with the same way the Rhodesians that there there were like kind of, I guess proto fire force tactics. Yeah. There was a lot of Africanization. That was a that was a common. I don't yeah. know what the, there's an actual Portuguese term for it, but it's yeah. It there were a lot of both white and black troops as well in the Portuguese conflicts, just like in yeah. the Asians. Yeah, there was South a lot African of there was a lot of the use of yeah. a lot of um, the special forces units of the command of the yeah. at least the commandos within the Portuguese military yeah. were native black soldiers. Yes, officered by by black soldiers, which the Rhodesians didn't do until basically Chris Cox's around so seventy seven. Yeah. I think it was the first first actually the first. Regular army black officer mm -hmm. was not till I think 70 76. That guy was uh with the French regiment, which we'll talk about in a moment. Oh, the we'll French, about, we'll talk about the seventh, seventh company. Oh, yes, that was a disaster, <laughs> but it, it, yeah. we'll talk about that in a sec. Um, but this, the they were officered by blacks, and all your NCOs were black, all the soldiers were black. It was, it was like mm -hmm. you know, black Africans in Angola and Mozambique fighting these wars, yes. And sometimes there were white soldiers alongside them. And mm -hmm. these guys came just with a ton of experience working with indigenous populations. Mm -hmm. Some of them themselves were born in Africa. Yes. Like they didn't, they'd never been to Portugal in their lives. Mm -hmm. Same with the Rhodesians. Some of them had never been to England in, in their lives or, or the or United Kingdom in their lives. Mm -hmm. They had deep connections to Africa. Oftentimes they spoke the language. You find that a lot now. Mm -hmm. One uh, of the men was even from Brazil, according to Chris Cox originally, and mm -hmm. spoke fluent. Portuguese. Portuguese, yeah. yeah. So these guys that came from Portugal brought a wealth of experience with them. Now, some of them weren't the most savory figures. There's, mm -hmm. a, there's a few deserters and crazy people. Oh, yeah, of course. Which, again, if you want details on that, read the book. Yes. Because he does talk about deserters. We can't emphasize enough. Read the book. Yes. But there's Portuguese, there's Brits, there's Americans, there's New Zealanders, there's Aussies, Aussies there's West Germans, everybody, all over the world yeah, yeah. for different reasons, but mm -hmm. very, very seldom do you see these soldier of fortune, cutthroat mercenary types. Yes, yeah. And those that do show up are those that show up with a lot of like racial Ex anonymity yeah. to the, not anonymity, it was animosity towards the uh, native black populations, the Shonen and the Billy were not welcomed. They were maligned, not let into the military. There's um there's Sorry, interesting who, who are you talking right now? I'm, I'm talking about uh like Harold Covington, for example. Because that guy oh, was know, he died he died pretty recently. He's like a mm -hmm. he's like a what do you run? I don't remember what group he ran, but he basically had a little white nationalist group that was all infiltrated by the FBI and everything in the, yeah. in the 90s and all that in the U.S. He was an American. He showed up to Rhodesia trying to join the Rhodesian army. Mm -hmm. And for many years, he always claimed, I think until his death in, 
in uh, 2017 or 2018 or whatever. He claimed that he was a Rhodesian light infantry soldier. He never saw a day in the in the Rhodesian army. They rejected yeah. him immediately because yeah. he was trying to. He started the Nazi Party of Rhodesia, <laughs> and oh, he <boy>. finally got he <laughs> gamer got, moment. Gamer moment. He got <laughs> deported. He got deported. Because he threatened to firebomb a synagogue in Bulawayo. Oh my! Uh, he got deported yeah, from no. Rhodesia. They, 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 they had they zero not, tolerance for, no, for anybody no, saying that they were a Nazi. Yeah, they had no tolerance for just no. nut jobs who didn't understand what the fight was about or what you know. No, the and there's of it. like yeah, there's um, men like that wouldn't last long in this. Game. Well, no, he was he was the, yeah. he was literally deported. Yeah. He was there for like two years. And then mm -hmm, he worked. Yeah. Uh, he worked. He was like a clerk as an engineer or something. Mm -hmm. And they kicked him out. Yeah. And he always claimed he was in the army. He's like he wasn't. He was kicked out. That's mm -hmm. a it's a nineteen I think eighty three eighty four FBI affidavit showed that he was kicked out because the Zimbabwean government handed over all the records of mm -hmm. him trying to join the army at the request of the FBI when they investigated his his white net you know his Wignat group yeah and the guy was kicked out he he wasn't let in because he was and yeah. then finally he was sorry first off he wasn't allowed in the army and then second he was deported yeah uh, there's another guy Richard. Biederman, who was in the Rhodesian SAS, he he got in. He was actually an NCO, and you won't find this anywhere, guys. So here it is first that you'll you'll hear it. But Biederman, uh, despite being a American Nazi Party member, mm -hmm. he's a member of uh, Lincoln Rockwell's American oh, Nazi whoa. Party. Okay. He was a pretty high up guy in Minis the Minnesota chapter, I think. Mm -hmm. And he showed up to the Rhodesian Army. They took him. They didn't know his background, you know, because it's hard to check backgrounds. Yeah. Well, background. and also so, the yeah. They're... But this guy had a negative reputation about him himself from mm -hmm. one of the veterans who's now unfortunately deceased as of very recently, Emery Baca, who's another American volunteer in the Special Air Service, Rhodesian SAS. He remembers this guy harassing like new recruits in, in the Special Air Service by blasting like Nazi music and stuff and then making fun of black people. He wasn't super popular when it came down to the punch, despite the fact that he he did end up becoming an NCO. Uh, he was a sergeant, and mysteriously, he went on a operation into Mozambique, and he was killed by friendly fire. Very mysterious. Ah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. He, Richard no, yeah. Biederman. He's still considered one of the, the, the crippled eagles, one of the American volunteers killed yeah. in action, but no. if you look at his story, there's a lot of weird... Yeah. Oh, no... He was shot by friendly fire, and no yeah. one knows mm -hmm. that. Like, very seldom did that happen. Because Rhodesians were very disciplined on. Yes, the, yeah. It's the nature of the bush war was very close, and yeah, no, you're usually you're shooting at whatever was behind you, and or in, in front of you, in yeah. front of you, yeah. not behind you. Your guns yeah, are behind but, you. Yeah, yeah. It was just he died in a very suspicious circumstances, but he was very unpopular. Yeah. with his weird little Nazi songs and. Yeah. whatnot so mm -hmm. Biederman's an interesting one Covington's yeah. an interesting but uh, it yeah, just no, shows I mean, like you get you get wackos in every yeah and I've heard formation and um, army I mean your I, average I, Rhodesian was fighting there, for his home there was an even crazier one there was a guy that another a Canadian Rhodesian vet told me about I don't I'd have to get his name again and maybe if we interview this vet down the road we can get that name and you I couldn't find any records on this guy so this is an anecdotal story but what he was doing because he did SAS selection as well he didn't make it. He didn't make mm -hmm. it. I want to emphasize he didn't make it. He ended up joining another regiment. But if you remember, there was a guy in the SAS who joined. He was an American. He was a neo-Nazi. And he was so dejected by the fact that he was 
getting number one Rhodesian army pay, which is not a lot in a worthless currency. Yeah. So it's not, not only is it not a lot, but it's a worthless So it's exactly like Nazi Germany. (laughs) It's exactly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so he was like, what the hell? Why are notes? Yeah, he's like, why, what, why am I not getting money? This sucks. And he also got basically treated like shit, like a, like a, like a literal piece of human turd. Not even a human being, just a turd. Yeah. By the instructors, because that's just the harsh discipline yeah, of the yeah. Rhodesian military. There's a lot of yelling and screaming. And he wasn't being treated like this hero who's like going to volunteer for a foreign land. Mm-hmm. He wasn't treated like a yeah. uh, a baron. What's his name? Baron the, the Greek, the British. Uh-huh. You know the what's that guy's name? The, the the that famous mercenary, the the baron that goes over to fights fights for Greece. For Greece? Yeah, for against the Turks. You know this. No, I, oh, oh, I know who you're talking about, yeah, but I can't yeah. remember his name. We always we always say his name. Oh, yeah. Anyways, it'll come to us. But anyways, this um, this dude, basically, he's so dejected. And again, bear in mind, he's a Nazi. Yeah. He's so dejected. Oh, even worse, he tries to join Zanla. <laughs> <laughs> He did, he did, he, one he struggle, one struggle against the instructors. Yeah, he literally <laughs> jumps the fence and he's like running to Mozambique and apparently gets killed by Zanla when he shows up well, in their lines. Of course, just this random white guy is like, no, I'm one of you. <laughs> but I he's hate so Israel as well. He tries to join, he tries to join the, the black <laughs> communists because he's so dejected. Yeah. But it just showed like these guys if they're going there with Yeah, no, there was yeah they're, they're on the on the pamphlets, they literally said no mercenaries need apply. Yeah. No, and that's uh I mean American neo Nazis do not exactly have a There are a few star, that tried to go over, but yeah, they have a sterling military reputation. Have you yeah. ever heard of that time where Don Black, who is the lead the other one, yeah. Uh, a guy who I don't think he was led into the country. No, but what I was saying is he, um, along with a number of sort of clansmen and stuff, tried to once take, uh, launch a coup in the Caribbean, invited by some black dictator who led, like, a far-right Rastafarian movement. There needs to be a movie about this. This is, like, the most just amazingly weird thing that ever happened. But, I mean, they basically got, like, arrested by the Coast Guard a minute after leaving the harbor. Like, it was, like, just such, like, a dying with a whimper, like, this... Yeah, I know, these yeah. guys are not... Um, they're, they're not, they're yeah, not there's... The, brightest. Uh, the, the guy I was thinking of was Lord Byron. Lord Byron? Oh, the Barry famous poet. I know yeah. him more as the poet, but yes. But he's, he's basically a mercenary. Yes, right? he did. But these yeah. guys think they're, like, romantic, gonna go yeah. save countries. Well, I think a lot of... Like I think a lot of these kind of types think they're gonna be, um... Who is Otto Scorzani? But... Yeah. Like, yeah, that's, they're not. They're not. <laughs> no one's Otto Scorzani. No, there's only one. There can yeah. only be one. There can only be one Otto Scorzani. Uh, he, yeah. he was one, actually a quite a over. mad lad, all yeah. politics aside. But Yeah, but yes. th- these guys were not, uh, yeah. they were not all there. Yeah. Um, speaking we, we, of sort of terms in regard to... Yeah, we've, we've digressed a little we've bit. We've digressed a bit. We've been talking about uh, American neo-Nazis for about like <laughs> 10 minutes. Please please don't dox us. Again. Oh, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> please. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, uh, let's talk maybe a bit about the terminology used for the uh, book. Now, mm-hmm. there's a very controversial word that's often associated with the Rhodesian Bush War. The word is floppy, which was described... Uh, 
as sort of a derogatory term for the gorillas. But the interesting thing in Chris Cox's Fire Force is the term floppy only comes up like three or four times. The main term used for the uh, communist guerrilla forces is gooks, which is kind of an interesting one. Uh, and they don't refer to the other black people that way. The other black people are referred to as black people or colored people. Or, or Shona or Netabili. Or Shona or Netabili. Or Matabili. Yeah, they're, not, they're not referred to as... So it's, it's not a racial term. But, yes, the term either gooks or in official documents... Uh, CTs. CTs, communist terrorists. Communist terrorists. Yep. But, yeah, I was wondering maybe if you could shed some light on the strange use of yeah. the term gook. So... Floppies, it doesn't come up actually that much in the book. No, and in very fact, little. it's it, it it really came out after the war as as a as a terminology thing. I don't. It's hard to get into the what is it? I don't know the etym- etymology or whatever of the, of the word itself. Mm-hmm. But it just refers to when the enemy dies, they flop. Yes, basically, yeah, they flop, and mm-hmm. I think. You know, any anybody that dies flops when they yeah, die. No, yeah. It's just it's, how you help yeah, people. You're shot by something, you you tend to flop over and die. It's it's kind that's, of almost like nice, um, uh, it, yeah, it's kind of like a term like you're gonna be dead, like you're dead meat. You're is dead basically meat, yeah. the. I don't think that. No, I don't think it has a racial connotation. No, I I, I again, yes. I, this is something that I've been challenged on personally, and I've had to look into, and I yeah. have not found, to my knowledge, that. That word has any racial connotations. Yeah. I, I now, only... gooks, the word gooks has Definitely. racial connotations, yes. right? And you by the know. way, guys, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're using that word strictly in the interest of history here, by the way. Yes, context, we, are not, context, we do not context, go around so calling thinks, people uh, gooks yeah. or floppies for that matter. Yeah. It's a Malayan war thing. They fought mm-hmm. against the Chinese, Chinese terrorists. terrorists. Yes. In those times, and even even in the Second World War, so in World War Two, Malaya, they were fighting against the Japanese, and you you have American Marines, yes. you have, uh, and also in Korean as well. You have the American Marines, the U.S. soldiers, British forces, Australians. Yes. There's just you know there was a lot more, I guess, pejorative racial words used mm-hmm. in the common vernacular. Yes. It wasn't like they were overtly racist, maybe like a little. Like subtly yes. racist yeah. is just the the culture then, right? And for, mm-hmm. for better or worse, that was the reality. Those were the terms they used. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's Malaya, the same like calling the the Germans were Krauts and or Fritz or Fritzies yeah. and all same, that kind of thing. It was the same thing. same yes. thing, right? Yeah. Sausage eaters. Yeah, exactly. It was all derogatory because they're the enemy, and they're yeah. you know the the point is the Japs the, were nips and all the Japs that kind were nips. Yeah, <laughs> Japs, right? The other yeah. one, right? Yeah, it, it's. It was always to be derogatory and to dehumanize the enemy. You hear all yes. these words used yeah. to, to dehumanize the enemy. Yeah. Because it's very hard for them to, except for in the case of the Japanese, where they, they did, you know, the atrocities were more, especially in the middle of the war, it was more apparent what their atrocities were, what they were committing, what they are doing. Yes. Right? There's pictures of yeah. the headings and stuff. Whereas the Germans, it wasn't until after the yeah, war. That they it, were really it, like, it was Whoa. not on the Western and Italian yeah. fronts. It was it was yeah. only until we found out sort of what had gone on. What had gone on in the East and what had yeah. gone on in, in the concentration yes, camps and, and stuff Poland that and all that. Yeah. that they had it, you know, because it, theoretically it's like white people fighting white people, so it's a it's a hard explanation. So yeah, you have yes. to kind of de- anyways in in, yeah. in warfare, you generally either have to let the uh, enemy dehumanize themselves or 
yes. you dehumanize yeah. the enemy, yeah. or a bit of both, so that your, you're your soldiers are desensitized yeah. to combat. You're, you're not right? going to fight somebody you respect and admire. You're not going to yeah. kill people yeah. who yeah, you respect Yeah, it's American Civil War. Yanks and rips. Yeah, no, yeah. So there's always pejorative words, and just in the vernacular. Mm-hmm. So gooks was one of those leftover words from Malaya, because a lot of the people that were in the senior level positions of the Rhodesian military had served in either Malaya or Korea. Well, maybe not Korea, but definitely like those Second World War mm-hmm. and, and, and Malaya, the Malayan emergency, when yeah. they had a communist insurgency in the British colony of Malaya. A lot of Rhodesian soldiers went there. That's where their special air service was formed. Peter Walls, the overall commander of the Combined Forces, uh, the founder of the Sleuth Scouts, Ron Reed Daly, both of those dudes... Were, were integral to that, that Rhodesian military history story mm-hmm. were both in Malaya. And that's where they basically cut their teeth and learned the trade, learned how yeah. to deal with a insurgency yeah. in an effective way because the British were very effective in Malaya. Oh, they were incredible. I mean, it, it, Gerald so, Templer's response to the Malayan emergency is probably the most effective counterinsurgency operation in modern history, I would say. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't get better the, than that. There, there's no comparison. Yeah, you look um, at that guidebook if you want to know how you defeat yeah. an insurgency. Another system. thing, just there, there's a lot of military terminology in the book, and we don't have time to get through all of it. Yeah, but, but they, they, so gooks. Yeah, that's was, something we felt the terms that address. Yeah, CTs. Yeah, CTs is also one that was definitely more professional. Yeah, it was more sort. professional. Yeah, so, CTs yeah. is often what the officers and what they'd like call the enemy specifically. Gooks was sort of just general soldier slang, like just yeah. oh, there's like uh, there's some couple times where they're talking like, do you think there's any gooks hiding out in this village or something? Yeah, like it's that kinda... it's not like I said, it's not a word that has racial connotations. Well, not towards black people. It was kind of an anti-Chinese insult originally. Yeah, it was an anti-Chinese. Yeah, insult. which is why it's and, so and weird and to and read strange. it through the yeah. book. Yeah, but that was the that was the yeah. very um, the, the the common terminology. And there's a there's a guy. And he kind of chuckles when he says the word, uh, General John Hickman, who was with the Sleuth Scouts. Yeah. I think he was involved in the operational planning of the Op Eland raid, where the you know the seventy-ish Sleuth Scouts showed up and to Mozambique and they killed a thousand plus rebels yes. and, and Frelimo fighters and stuff. Uh, Op Eland, nineteen seventy-six. He, he he. There's an interview with him on YouTube where he's saying. We called them, and he kind of chuckles because he's thinking, "Oh, how ridiculous the word is." Yep. Like, well, we used to we used to call them gooks, <laughs> and he's just kind of like, "It is a ridiculous word. Yeah. It's kind of a ridiculous word to be using in the context." But that's that's what they use, and yeah. it didn't. It it did have a racial connotation, perhaps maybe twenty years before, but it was just yeah. kind of a leftover term. It, for, it was basically it meant enemy yeah. at this point. Um, yeah. The um, yeah one thing I also on a non. Uh, on a different topic, um, I actually never knew what a stick was before I read this book. I always thought the word um, stick, when you hear Rhodesians say, well, we're back in the sticks or something like this, that John Edmonds song, uh, we're going to reference him a lot in Rhodesian, <laughs> Rhodesian uh, episodes. Um, I always thought it was like, oh, we're in the bush. It was slang for we're in the bush, we're in the sticks. But I didn't realize stick actually meant a squad. And it was kind of their basic unit they it's like a section yeah they uh organized fire force tactics around it's a four-man teams normally yes very very small units yeah and all these sticks would basically work independently but also cooperatively at the same time when they're conducting fire force missions Mm -hmm. yes there's all these small teams moving kind of concurrently with one another 
maintaining comms and squeezing and, and just casting that net, a big net over the CTs mm-hmm. and closing that net with with air power, with the air force, with paratroopers, with uh, helicopter borne troops, with ground troops like Revision Armored Car Regiment would sometimes show up BSAP. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oftentimes the BSAP and the territorials or the Revision Regiment or some some ground patrol engaging like initiating the contact or some farmer. RLI, RAR would show up and they do these fire force missions where they cast a big net and they squeeze. Yeah. I feel like we should probably get now here. One thing we haven't really talked much about so far is the equipment and gear used by the the soldiers during the Rhodesian Bush War. I mean, we mentioned short shorts, but why don't we talk a little bit about the, the FN and the FAL? Yeah. So, as I, I'm not a weapons expert, but we're not we're not gunsmiths or anything but yeah. there's a great video on youtube uh there's a series of videos actually by forgotten weapons ian mccollum from forgotten weapons where he goes over the rhodesian fal so that video will do a way better job explaining mm-hmm. what what i know about the the rifles that the rhodesians were using by and large Mm-hmm. That being said, I can give a, you know, there's a basic rundown here. And, and Chris Cox does talk to the effectiveness of, of this specific yes. rifle, the FNFAL. Uh, there are a lot of few leftovers of the FNFAL, which is a 7.62 NATO battle rifle, basically, with a 20-round magazine. A lot of them were leftovers from either the former, when they were British colony, when they were using the L1A1 variant. Mm-hmm. They're kind of distinguished by the, the, the carry handles, um, the lack of a grenade launcher site, then the lack of the haulback device, which are all things basically used to... So that the Rhodesians, the first things they did is they chopped off that carrying handle, they put on what's called a haulback device, which is effectively a muzzle brake that reduces the recoil, so you can... While you're snap shooting, because part of the Drake shooting was that you, snap, you, know, you double tap, pop, pop, it reduced the recoil significantly when you're shooting continuous rounds. Now, you're not really sh- supposed to shoot. They were discouraged from shooting full auto. Mm-hmm. But with that haulback device, it made yeah. the uh, 308 round a lot more controllable. And with the grenade launcher sights, they're able to, I think it's a Zulu, Zulu, Zulu rockets, Zulu 24, something might, like that. Might be. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to get the, yeah. I'll have to look up that terminal. Yeah, and and Car- Car- but they, they had, they had rifle grenades that, needed that they used to great effect and during these very very close and up and personal fire force missions so they needed a really effective uh, grenade site oftentimes these guys would have iron sights mm-hmm. i think it was this the the, the sous set the uh, i don't think it was a sous set it was one of the it was whatever the l1a1 optical again there's far better resources on this than myself but they did sometimes have optics mm-hmm. like scopes or sights on their uh, magnified sights on their FALs, mm-hmm. but it wasn't very common. They were available in stores; you could take them out, but they just because of the close natures. Again, these guys are casting a net and closing in, so your typical engagement was perhaps under a hundred meters. Yes, there's an excellent video um, recorded in the 1978 by Nick Downey showing some combat footage. Mm-hmm. With uh, with Lord Lord Cecil, who was later killed, like a week after yeah. he filmed this yeah, video. Yeah, it's an RAR unit fighting like, uh, guerrillas. Yeah, and you can see the engagement distances these guys. Like you can literally see the RAR guy shooting, and there's a there's a CT in front of him, 
50 meters away and the guy's getting dropped you could you could watch it happen these were very very close by the time the shooting happened you're really really stuck in with the with the enemy and there's there's accounts in in fire force of, of bayonetics of like skirmishes hand to hand. Oh yes, like no were, bayonets were, were very yeah, heavily they, used. They were they were running into each other. Sides, yeah, yeah, they were literally you would you would literally squeeze in the enemy up close and personal. And so if you look at how dense the bush was in certain places, yeah, um, you, you couldn't were, see you, a guy until he guy was like a meter in front of you until he could like touch him. And yeah. you know, guys were like getting into like fist fights and they're 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 up and personal. It was close yeah. quarters. It was close quarters fighting. Sometimes two or three times a day, yeah. you get called out and you had to, you had to jump and, and cast that net yeah. and squeeze that net. Yeah. Um, so. Cox also mentions the main squad support unit was the 7.62 caliber mag the machine MAG. gun, which yeah. is originally a Belgian weapon. Yeah, so another FN, mm-hmm. uh, Fabrique Nationale yeah. machine gun, standard British, same thing, iron sights, lays down a lot of firepower. In a very very short period of time, full auto, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah. I've shot that thing before. It's it's beautiful. Nice. So yeah. I've shot that thing a few times, yeah. and it's uh it's it rattles pretty quick. It's it's a pretty <laughs> speedy uh yeah. speedy speedy piece. It's heavy. It's heavy as shit, but it's it's a uh, it's a good piece. The Americans would know it as the M two forty Bravo, and here in Canada, C six. We still use it. Mm-hmm. It's one of the ones we still a lot of NATO military still use because it's it's pretty it's pretty yeah. sexy. The um. And he also talks a bit about the the weapons of the gorillas, the men they're fighting, which and they seem to be the standard bad guy guns, which basically means anything made in Russia, the yeah, SKS, the AK forty seven, the the RPD. Um, he seems to that. see a lot of S in, in in Cox's book. He's running yeah. into well, we'll, um, we'll get the most we'll, feared gorilla weapon, of course, was the RPG, which was, yeah was often used in ant by. And is an anti-personnel weapon by the guerrillas. I mean, yeah, and again, you guys, yeah. these guys were getting such close engagement distances that you can realistically use it. Yes, as a, which is terrifying. Yeah, it's just no. a terrifying prospect. Yeah. Also, another interesting thing just about the the guerrillas is uh, both Zanla and Zipra to some extent, and Free uh, Frilip. For help limo. me out here. For hey. limo. For limo. Uh, anyway. All used uh, T thirty four Soviet tanks occasionally, which is interesting. It they they're never mentioned in an engagement in Cox's book, but the guerrilla forces did have them. Yeah, they had access to them. Yes, and yeah. they had access. I think that some T fifty fives as well. So yeah. they had they had armored. Mm-hmm. They didn't roll into Rhodesia. They're always kept. On yeah, well, I the think the Rhodesians because Cox mentions the Rhodesians didn't have a lot of armor, but when they had such an effective air force, I mean, it would have been like tank plinking. I feel if they'd tried. Well, they did have some pitch engagements externally, and there's yeah. a lot, there's a million, million books covering those mm-hmm. external ops, because I think he only goes on one or two external ops in the book, if I remember correctly. Yes. He doesn't go out of Rhodesia a whole lot. He's dealing with these yeah. internal, like I said, the, the nature of the war in Rhodesia itself with these cadres coming across the border in small teams, doing their business, and bugging out, mm-hmm. right? And that's how, eventually, they... they, they took out the Salisbury oil depot yep. which destroyed Rhodesia's oil supply and they'd lost at that point the war was over because mm-hmm. they had no more fuel for the whole country because right? yes. they, they had they'd faced a fuel embargo so you have uh you have that inside the country but outside of the country there were definitely some armored mm-hmm. battles and engagements going on with the Georges coming up against C-34 it's kind of crazy yeah. but that's a 
That's a podcast for another day. Yes. There's one interesting weapon on the Rhode- in the Rhodesian arsenal I want to read an excerpt about. The gorilla was lying backed up against a rock with his arms splayed harmlessly by his sides and an SKS rifle lying uncradled over his lap. His head lolled slightly to the left and seeing his hooded eyes slowly focus on me, I stood there mesmerized. Don't touch him! My head snapped round, the spell broken. Percy was at my side, staring at the gorilla intently, and I gently lowered my rifle. Don't touch anything, he hissed urgently. The gorilla's mouth had fallen open, and he was salivating in an obscene fashion. He's fucked, Corp, I pronounced stupidly. Taking no notice of me, Percy edged slowly forward and crouched down next to the obviously very sick man who is now emitting soft, animal-like groans. Percy took a long time examining the gorilla. He looked into his eyes, examined his sagging gray skin, and finally sniffed at his body. Then, without any explanation, he ordered us to leave. I was very confused. Why had he just gone on and left him like that? I wonder what was wrong with that gorilla. Well, we do know what's wrong with that gorilla, as Chris later learns. Yes, Chris does later learn that that gorilla was a victim of Rhodesia's chemical warfare program. That's right. Yes, which... Anthrax poisoning, potentially. Yes. Could have been ricin, could have been, probably not cholera, but cholera was used. He actually, he talks about later on that same page that Special Branch left um, genes coming... (laughs) We started with genes, we were ending with genes, we were going full circle with genes. Yeah. Um... With poison on them in stores, they thought the gorillas were likely to rob while telling everyone else, don't touch these things. And yeah, those were the kind of um, things that special brands would leave out to. They'd find guys basically in the bush wearing a pair of brand new jeans dead. Yes. Dead as a doornail. Yeah. It's pretty gnarly. Uh, Yeah. And it's interesting. It's interesting that. Chris Cox doesn't, he kind of knows what's going on, but at the same time, he's not told what's going on. He's like, don't touch this guy. Yeah. So, it's not like the frontline troops knew exactly the extent of the chemical warfare. But there's a there's a book by Glenn Cross, which we will detail, and it's the use of chemical warfare by the Rhodesians, which, at the end of the day, despite some successes, was relatively small scale, yes. definitely compared to the South Africans, what they were doing. Yeah. Uh, and again, is it is it justified? Is it totally moral? Well, probably not. But war is hell, and yeah, it's it's a it's a very gnarly thing to be using any CBRN warfare. Mm-hmm. But the whole world was against them, and you have to. Yeah, I guess you have to look at it kind of contextually. Not that yeah. we're making any justifications for it, but at the same time. I don't think every level of the Rhodesian government knew what was going on, mm-hmm. and even those foot soldiers on the ground kind of vaguely understood that there's something special branches doing yes. in terms of potentially poisoning people and putting cholera in the water and stuff. And yeah, yeah there's, there was there's some... collateral damage as a result of that. But yes. was it successful? You could you could argue either yeah. way. Well, so didn't the, one of the heads of special branch afterwards had kind of an interesting career after the war? Not special branches, CIO. Ken, oh. Ken, uh, Ken Flowers. Yes. Yeah. He came, Ken Flowers, who definitely knew about this and definitely signed off and approved and probably 
supported a lot of these operations. Mm -hmm. Later became Robert Mugabe's head of secret police. Yeah. Funny enough, a lot of people say he was, uh, there's a lot of evidence to indicate he was a MI6 asset. Interesting. And it's no surprise that Mugabe retained him because he did such a good damn job yeah, no, screwing over the Rhodesians. So there's a lot of, again, we can go in all day into the black backwater yeah, politics. We're, we're focusing of, on the, yeah. or the black backdoor politics. We're focusing a lot on Chris Cox's operational history. And mm -hmm. that's what I guess our next podcast is going to be. Yes, our next podcast. Thank you guys so much for staying in, staying on our first one. For yeah. staying on with our first one here. Um, is going to be about this one was more about the training and the the men who fought in Rhodesia and their equipment and you know some of the things they believed and said. Second one is going to be more about the combat and what the war was, the, the the bloody and messy reality of what the war was like, both for soldiers, guerrilla or for soldiers, guerrillas, and civilians. Um, and we're going to look at some other interesting topics too. There a bit about the media during the Bush War and um, yeah, some stuff about what happened to some of the guys after the war, which we mentioned today. But yes, this has been, I think, a fantastic flagship episode for the Men Among Men stories. Hank, would you like to close off with any comments? Fantastic. Because you like hearing the sound of your own voice. I love hearing the sound of my own voice. <laughs> so, obviously, as we were recording, we were surrounded by a lot of smelly things. Military surplus. A lot of clothing. You're wearing an actual jacket right now from another military. A piece of military surplus. A piece of military history. Mm -hmm. We like our military history and... Dear listener, if you like your military history, there's a little web store. A little web store. You may have you might have heard of it, Matt. It's called um, Fire Force Ventures. Yes. Yeah. No. It's supposedly makes some good stuff. Right. By the way, I, I just called you Matt. Matt L or Bindu. <laughs> <laughs> doxed. doxed. <laughs> co that company's been doxed too. It's interesting. Yes. And this company happens to support this show. I work for this company. In fact, I run this company. Hmm. I am not biased in any way, shape, or form, but I think they've said some really, really interesting things. They've got some, <laughs> like, they've got some South African chess rigs, original from the Bush War from that era, battle jackets, Pattern 83, again from this era from the Bush War. They've got a lot of British surplus right now. They've got a lot of new drops. They're going to have new drops throughout the season here. Uh, we're recording this in November, mid-November, and they're going to have drops basically all the way to the end until Christmas. A lot of new, cool, interesting pieces of militaria. Some very functional stuff, some very vintage stuff. And over the next few weeks, there's going to be a lot of cool sales as mm -hmm. the year winds down. And in the new year, Rhodesian kit, the Rhodesian brushstroke that they're pretty well known for as well, is going to be coming very back. Much so in a big way we talked a little bit about guns and firearms mm -hmm. and gear and tactics and strategy if you like that kind of stuff there's also another place you can you can you can learn a little bit more about it now you can obviously own the pieces of history and military uh, militaria and stuff from certain events and time periods 
It's very functional. It's very cool. But you could also check out one of our hosts, Commando Blog, for basically all kinds of articles written by some subject matter experts mm -hmm. where they'll be going over guns, gear, lifestyle, workout tips, shooting tips, gunsmithing, Bubba and professional. And just Playboy, but for people who are based. <laughs> yeah, based Playboy. <laughs> yeah. So if you're into that, check out Commando Blog. That's Commando with the K. Kilo Oscar Mike Mike Alpha November Delta Oscar Commando K O M M A N D O blog.com or fireforceventures.com F I R E F O R C E Ventures V E N T U R E S.com. You can find both of our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Please do look us up, support our partner businesses and if you would like to support this show you can find us on subscribe star under the fire force banners or fire force ventures banner subscribe star.com slash fire force dash ventures and to all of the rhodesian security force veterans particularly those that served in the Rhodesian Light Infantry and Mr. Chris Cox for giving us this primer into our podcast. Uh, to the many men of the British South Africa Police, the Rhodesian African Rifles, Salute Scouts, the Rhodesian SAS, the Rhodesian Armored Car Regiment, all these units that comprise this history. To all the Bush Warriors that fought in South Africa, Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, and all these wars that are oftentimes forgotten about and mischaracterized by the mainstream media and mainstream academia to all those that fought in the cold war the second world war the great war and all warriors through history to those currently serving to our law enforcement our first responders and those on the front lines right now dealing with COVID-19, those essential workers and healthcare providers, we thank you for your service to the free world and allowing us to do our podcast.